The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Revelation chapter 21. Well, already I met some visitors this morning here at church, so thank you for being here. I believe a few first-time visitors, so you've never been here, so you haven't been with us, at least physically with us, in our study of the book of Revelation which has been going on for quite some time now, and we've been taking it a chapter at a time, uh, but that's okay. I think you will be able to understand chapter 21 if you haven't been with us. And we're going to attempt in this hour to cover all 27 verses. There's a bulletin there if you grab that. It just has the title and maybe a place for you to take notes if you'd like to do that. And the title, I struggled with the title because there's so much here in those 27 verses. Uh, I just put the New Jerusalem, because that's the main character in this chapter, the New Jerusalem. We'll talk about what that is. That's not the only thing this chapter talks about, but that's definitely a key. But prior to getting that, I wanted to challenge us with some, just a couple of questions to get us to think deeply before we jump into the passage here. Important and really personal questions, so... I guess my question of the day for you, assuming that you're a believer and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, this question is for all of you, and it's a question I ask myself as well, and that's, what is your greatest desire? What is your ultimate desire in life? What stirs your passions, or what are you passionate about? Uh, What motivates you the most? What are your greatest longings for? And if you're like any other finite, fallen human being, that could be difficult to answer simplistically. If you're a Christian and know the Bible, you know the right answer. You know what you're supposed to say. But that's probably many times different than what reality is. But Scripture is clear. Our greatest desire if you're a believer, is to know God and to be with God. Not just to know God, but to be with God, to be in the presence of God, to be in the immediate presence of God. That should be our greatest desire. At least Scripture tells us it should be. That should be the longing of our heart. That's what we plan for and look to and why we live. That's the motivation for living. To know God and to live with God. And I mean by living with God, I mean in the immediate presence of God. We don't have that privilege and opportunity now. God is with us. He's present spiritually. But not in this physical, spatial, literal way that our hearts long for. We don't see him. Peter says that in his epistle. We know Jesus. We love Jesus as believers. We've never seen him. He died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father. Physically, he's not here. He's not making special appearances to anyone until he does come at the end of the age. But our heart's desire, greatest desire, greatest passion should be to know God and to be with him in his immediate presence. And then we have to balance that through all of our other Desires And all your other desires aren't illegitimate or sinful just because that should be our greatest desire because we have many desires and many of them are legitimate because we're citizens of both heaven and of earth. We're stewards of the time God's allotted to our 
life here. In the same parable that speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the book of Matthew, that reminds us we need to live in light of Christ's coming and, and be ready at the same time, it says, to occupy. It's the terminology in the King James in the book of Luke. Occupy until he comes. Be faithful until he comes. Invest until he Live this life in all that God has entrusted to your care. So we can have many desires at the same time. Just what are my greatest desires with respect to that specific area that God expects me to be a faithful steward? But under all these earthly desires that are legitimate to be a good parent, a good sibling, a good member of a local church, be faithful to God on this earth, a good citizen, those are all down here. And the big umbrella is my greatest ultimate desire should be to know God and to be with him and to be with him physically, literally in his presence. And none of us here on this earth have had yet that privilege. And with that, um, the flip side is another question. And what, what do you think God's greatest desire is for humanity? What is God's greatest desire? Or another, I mean, it could be stated many different ways. Why did God create Adam and Eve in the first place? Why did God choose to create the human race? That's a profound question. It'd be interesting to see your answers. I believe the Bible answers it clearly, explicitly, and right up front in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. God creates Adam and Eve. He makes them in his image. He tells them to rule on his behalf. And then as you go through Genesis, and then they sin and are disobedient, God is grieved. But before their sin, it's interesting because Genesis chapter 3 says, as Adam and Eve were hiding in the bushes trying to hide from their sin, that's what sinners do, they try to hide from God. Believers want to be in the presence of God. Sinners want to run and hide from God. There's no greater contrast than that. So Adam and Eve are running from their God, which means everything has changed. Previous to sin, they weren't running from God. They were with God. They were in God's presence. They were literally in God's physical presence because Genesis chapter 3 Verse 8 says, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord, Yahweh, walking in the cool of the day in the garden. That is mind-boggling. That is the immediate physical presence of God on earth. That was their condition before sin. Adam and Eve, unlike us, they knew the immediate presence of Almighty God, whatever form that was. It was a literal presence. It was a physical presence. And then because of sin, they were separated from God's immediate presence. And that's the end of Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord God said, because of their sin, he separated humanity from him. He is holy. They are now sinful. And then that's when he stationed the fiery sword with the cherubim, separating humanity from the immediate presence of God. And from that point on, sinful fallen human beings could not experience the immediate presence of a holy God. And that's been true pretty much of all of human history for the last 6,000 years. But in light of that, God's greatest desire for humanity and the reason that he created us is he also has a desire to be with us, to be present with us, to have fellowship with us, to commune with us. That's God's greatest desire or purpose for creating humanity. Now, when I ask the question, what is God's greatest desire? Why did he create humanity? No doubt some of you said, oh, for his glory. Okay, I'll give you that one. That, that goes to the top of every question. For his, or Jesus! Yeah, okay, I'll give you that one too. But specifically, 
Practically speaking, when you get down to it, what is God's greatest desire? Why did he create humanity? It's because he wanted to be in the immediate presence and fellowship and commune with his people. That is God's desire. Not only is it his desire, it's his ultimate goal of world history and eternity. That's God's goal. And God's, God always fulfills his goals. They never go awry. They're never undone. They always get fulfilled exactly how he wants. So if you read the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that's a common theme. That is God's goal. He wants to be with his people in immediate, direct, unrestricted communion and fellowship with the greatest of intimacy with his creation. It was there in Genesis before sin. It hasn't been there since the fall. Every once in a while, God invades planet Earth with his immediate presence. He sends a, or actually he comes in a theophany. He comes in a vision. He visits Abraham uh, sporadically every once in a while and talks to him. There's a voice or his physical presence. He invades and talks to Moses face to face in a burning bush. Or Then he tells Moses to build a tabernacle for the people. The tabern to tabernacle, to dwell. That's literally what it was. And inside the tabernacle, inside that tent, on the very inside was the Holy of Holies. And literally, when Moses finished building it, God's presence came down from heaven and dwelt in that Holy of Holies. And human, the humans, they, they, the Israelites were not allowed to go in there. They couldn't be in the, um, the immediate presence of God. They needed to be veiled and shielded and protected from his holiness because they were fallen and sinful. And only the high priest once a year after blood had been shed, was allowed to go in there momentarily in the presence, the immediate presence of the Holy God, and then out. He violated that, he was dead on the spot. And even the immediate presence of God there, it wasn't shared by everybody. It wasn't a corporate experience by all of God's people, the Israelites. And then after the tabernacle, in the days of Solomon, God had him build the temple, and that took the place of the tabernacle. And it's the same thing, inside of Solomon's temple that took many years to build, seven or so, there was the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, that is where God's presence would dwell, where God's presence would tabernacle. And the same thing, once a year the high priest would be allowed in there, but no one else. So there was always a barrier between even God's people, not let alone the wicked unbelievers and the rebellious, but even God's people who knew him and loved him. And there was always a barrier between the people and God's immediate presence. He was not readily accessible. And that was true all throughout the time of the temple. And then in the days of Jesus, the God-man, he come down to earth, and John chapter 1 says that literally when Jesus was born, God tabernacled among men. Jesus is God. He took on a human body. And that means that God's literal physical presence was finally among the people. In an immediate way. Yet still, it was veiled. The presence of God wasn't the fullness of God in all of his attributes, says Philippians, because Jesus humbled himself. And so there was the immediate presence of God. That was the greatest fullness of the immediate presence of God in the entire Bible, entire world history was Jesus. God in the flesh who tabernacled, dwelt among men. But then he left, and God's physical, literal presence left. And then he sends his Holy Spirit. Now, his Holy Spirit is with us, but the Holy Spirit is invisible. A spirit lives inside the believer, is also in our midst as believers when we gather, but that is not the fullness of God's immediate presence 
especially in a physical way, for his people. But that is God's goal. That is his desire. That's where we are moving. When God gave Isaiah the prophecy about the coming Savior, the Messiah, in Isaiah 7.14, and predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, he wouldn't have a biological father. It would be an unprecedented and unrepeatable miracle that he would be born of a virgin and have no biological father. It's interesting at the end of that verse, that's talking about Jesus, that the virgin would give birth to a son, and his name shall be called, not Jesus, and his name shall be called, not the Messiah, and his name shall be called, not the Lamb of God. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is present with us. That is God's ultimate goal. You go to the Gospels, you see the ministry of Jesus Christ. No one ever called him Emmanuel. When he was born, Joseph and Mary didn't name him Emmanuel. The prophecy said when he's born, his name shall be called Emmanuel. And that wasn't intended just to be a a moniker on his birth certificate. It was actually a description of who he was. It was God in the flesh who will tabernacle with his people and be with his people, literally present with them, fulfilling God's greatest desire to be with his people. Some of you might be shocked or alarmed or even hesitating to believe me that God's greatest desire or ultimate goal for the human race is to be with them because we are so pathetic and God is so glorious. If you don't believe me, believe the words of the Lord Jesus Christ just before he died in John 17. I'm just going to read one verse. John 17 is an entire prayer of the Lord Jesus to his Father pouring out his heart as he prepares himself to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin and then be received back by the Father and then reinstated to full glory that he had before the incarnation. He's praying for himself. He's praying for his 12 apostles. He's also praying for all believers in his day, and he was praying for you. He prays for all believers of all the ages. It's amazing. Jesus prayed for you. And the Bible says Jesus is still praying for you. But listen to part of this prayer. What Jesus' ultimate desire is, is he's talking to the Father, pleading with the Father. John 17, verse 24, Father, I desire. Here it is. What is God's greatest desire? Here's Jesus, who is God. I desire. And Jesus' desires are 100% in sync with the Father's desires. Father, I desire that they also. Who's that? Believers. Christians of all ages. Beginning with the apostles down to the present day. Father, I desire that they, all believers of all the ages, whom you have given to me, be with me. That's God's greatest desire. That's Jesus' greatest desire. To be with you. And the fullness of this, Jesus was talking literally physically, in my immediate presence, because he says it, to be with me where I am. Where's that? He just told the disciples, I'm, I'm going to my Father's house, heaven, where there are many dwelling places, and I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you may be also. Thus fulfilling his greatest desire, to be with his people. This is just absolutely incredible. This is reality. This this should drown away and utterly dissolve 
undistracting thoughts and desires and goals that we are just have thrown in our face day after day, week after week. All the troubles of the world should just melt away in light of this, if you are a Christian. God loves you, you're one of his children, and his greatest desire is to be in your immediate presence. And you know what that is? That's called heaven. That's called heaven. And that's what, all of this, I'm just laying the groundwork for the fulfillment of all this, literally in the future, is Revelation 21. Where we see, finally, at the end of human history, almost 7,000 years of world history, and going into the eternal state, God's ultimate purpose for humanity is finally fulfilled. He will be with his people. That's his very name. That phrase is repeated all throughout Scripture, where God continues to just tell his people, I will be your God and you shall be my people. I will be your God and you shall be my people. I want to be with you and dwell with you and be in your presence. This life is a vapor. This life is a breath. This life isn't what it's all about. Living faithfully for God in this life is a part of accomplishing God's ultimate goal. So we have to live it to the fullest, absolutely. But we thank God that we know where this is all going. We know what this, where this is all headed, and we know the true meaning and purpose of this life. The ultimate goal is to be with our God, with the Creator. Flip that over 180 degrees, and you have a perfect definition of an unbeliever and their heart's desire. Somebody who doesn't know God, doesn't want to know God, who doesn't want to know Jesus, isn't interested. They're sinful, they're wicked. Jesus said that they are of their father, the devil. That's their desires. And so their desire, the last thing in the world that they desire is to be with God in his immediate presence forever. That's the last thing they want. So they avoid that, they ignore that, they distort that, they run from that, they hide from that, they drown that reality out to the best that they can. That's how it is to be an unbeliever. Their desire is not in heaven being with God. Their desire is this fallen, wicked, evil, satisfying world. That's their desire. That was your desire before you got saved. That was my desire before I got saved. Just the opposite. Sinners don't want to be in the immediate presence of a holy God. But saved sinners, their privilege is to do just that. So let's go to Revelation 21 now and look at this great truth revealed. Because in these 27 verses, there's a lot of stuff here. There's actually too much here to address. It is so specific, so detailed. One of the longest chapters in Revelation. So much of it, so mysterious. So I'm just going to, again, we're just giving an overview. I've had a couple people comment, and this is totally legitimate because I feel the same way. I feel your pain. Pastor Cliff, can you slow down in Revelation? And what they mean is, you're covering a whole chapter on, on Sundays. Can you just do like five verses at a time? Or No, actually, I can do one sentence uh, in, in, in a week. I mean, I could spend a lot of time on this. There is so much here. It is so rich. And ten years ago, I did preach through Revelation a little slower. It's posted on our website, and if you want to go back and listen to that, you can. But there is some benefit to going a little quicker, a chapter at a time, and getting that overview. You get a different perspective. It preserves some continuity. So that is helpful. And again, my, one of my goals was to do the big picture to help you and relay tools to you as you study so that you can just really dig down in your own time with the Lord. And many of you have given me testimony of that. You're reading Revelation regularly throughout the week. Some of you memorizing certain passages. That is fantastic. That, that was my goal. This is a book you need to be in for the rest of your life here on earth. That's what it says. You'll be blessed if you do. 
and if you obey it. And like I said, one of my goals is giving you hermeneutical tools along the way, because it is a challenging book. One of the main ones was you got to be familiar with the Old Testament to understand Revelation. Today, that's true again. Revelation 21, a lot of this phraseology, it's just like, oh man, okay, that's right out of Isaiah 65. Oh, that's, that's straight from uh, Isaiah 66. That's a quote from Isaiah 66. Oh, that's Genesis 1 through 3. Oh, okay, that's an exodus and the high priest and all of his uh, colored jewels. Uh, oh, that's Ezekiel 40 to 48. So those are just some of the passages that you have to know like the back of your hand, or at least be familiar with them to get the fullness of what John is saying. So that was one thing. Know your Old Testament. Read it. Be familiar with it. Another thing, this here's a new tool I'll give you, but it's really important because when I read the 20, 30 commentaries that I have on Revelation, most of which don't take it literally when it gets to chapters like uh, Revelation 21, because there's a lot of so-called symbolism and imagery and metaphors and literary devices. And so a lot of commentators say, ah, you know, don't get bogged down in the details. We can't understand this stuff anyway. We don't even know what it means. So it's a symbol for this. God is glorious. That's it. Because you have to symbolize, spiritualize everything. After all, all, quote, all the numbers in Revelation are non-literal, end quote. That's what one commentator said. All the numbers that you come across in Revelation are symbolic and not literal, end quote. And then I told you I believe just the opposite. For the most part, all the numbers in, Gen in Revelation are literal. Whether it's John closes his eyes, I saw a vision with a dragon with seven heads. He literally saw a dragon in his vision with seven heads. Now, the dragon symbolizes something, but he literally saw a seven-headed dragon. So, just here's another tool. If you wanted to write it down, that'd be great, because uh, you could explore this truth for a lifetime to see if I'm right or not. But when it comes to studying Revelation, this will be helpful. Just two points. You ready? All language is symbolic. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it is. It's true. Test me on that. All language is symbolic. So to make an argument and say, oh, this is symbolic language here, so you can't take it literally. Well, stop there. All language is symbolic. And then point number two, corollary. This is the complement to that. All symbols in language, all symbols communicate a literal truth. All symbols, I mean, those are profound if you think about them. And hopefully that helps you guide and walk through it. It won't be easy as you go through Revelation 21 and try to figure out what's literal and what's symbolic, but at every passage, every phrase, every verse, every word, at some point, you can get to that bottom level where here's the literal truth God is trying to communicate. And he uses language, which is symbolism. Hi, honey bunch. Hi, peaches. I want to squeeze you. We all know what I'm saying to my wife. He's not peaches, but it's communicating a literal truth. And we all understand that. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Revelation 21. We have gone through, oh boy, we've been through a lot, haven't we? We have been through the tribulation. Did you know that you were post-trib? We have been through the tribulation. Here's, here's the book of Revelation. John is bringing it to a close. As you know, John was now 95 AD. All the other 11 apostles have been murdered. He is a prisoner on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea. About 95 AD. The Roman emperor at the time is a guy named Domitian. 
He's vile, just like all the other emperors. And Jesus appeared to John and gave him this revelation about the end of the age and the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. And he told John, write it down. Now, he told John that in chapter 1, and you would think that, wow, Jesus told me to write it down, I better write it down. But periodically, John gets so caught up in the vision and sometimes overwhelmed, falling over, trembling, crying, weeping in awe, speechless, chin on the ground, he stops writing. And then the angels cast to push him on the shoulder. Hey, keep writing. And actually, we see that in this chapter. He sees, like no other person, the glories of heaven, of eternal heaven, and he is just awestruck. He's awestruck. He is speechless. And then God himself has to say, John, write it down, what you saw. So John's 95, I mean, he's uh, writing in 95 AD. He's an old man. He's a prisoner. He had been a pastor in Asia Minor. He was probably familiar with all seven of those churches that are listed in chapter 1, 2, and 3. They're under persecution, under duress from the Roman government. Jesus wants to encourage them and tell them to persevere, so he sends these seven epistles to the seven churches written by John. And not only that, in that information is to encourage them to not just to persevere in this life, but you've got a greater goal and you've got greater glory coming, and that is the end of the age and the fulfillment of all these promises. And the greatest of all is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming to make all things right. And not only that, you will be with him literally in his presence forever. How encouraging that must have been for those persecuted believers at that time. So uh, the first three chapters are those letters to those historical churches. And then from that point on, chapter 4 to 19 and beyond is the revelation John sees about the future, about what is to come. So Revelation 4 through the end of the book is all future, from, even from our perspective. It hasn't happened yet. And I know there are a fringe, small minority group of people, Christians, who say, no, everything in Revelation has already been fulfilled uh, Revelation 19 is not the second coming, even though it calls him the Word of God and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's not Jesus. That's the pagan Roman general Titus who slaughtered Jerusalem in 70 AD as they spiritualize everything away. There are Christians who do that. Beware of that. Be discerning about that. Revelation 4, through the end of the book, is yet future. John said it explicitly, chapter 4, verse 1, meta tauta, after these things. Here is the future. Here's how world history is going to end. We knew this was coming because God told Daniel that in Daniel 12. These are the end of days. And also we read Revelation chronologically. So 4 through 18 is the tribulation. It's seven years. It intensifies as it goes on. God is punishing and judging earth dwellers, those who take the mark of the beast and who have their allegiance to the Antichrist. And for the most, they reject Jesus Christ, the Lamb, and there's a minority of people who actually turn to Jesus Christ. Many of those are believing Jews. And God restores the nation of Israel in the future during the tribulation and rescues them at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Then at the end of those seven years, there's a great battle, and it's called the Battle of Armageddon. And that's where the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory in a physical body with his saints who are glorified in their physical bodies. And he comes to make war, and he does. And he comes to Jerusalem. And he slaughters his enemies. And he takes the Antichrist and the false prophet and literally doesn't kill him, but takes him and throws him into the lake of fire, which is eternal hell, where they will live forever and ever and ever and suffer conscious, physical, deserved punishment separated from God. And then Jesus Christ reigns on the earth for 1,000 years. That's called the millennium because John says six times it's 1,000 years. And it fulfills many Old Testament prophecies 
that said that the Messiah will reign on the earth. Psalm 2, even our Father's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And that's the fulfillment of it. And the Lord Jesus Christ reigns with his saints for 1,000 years. He's the only king, the only ruler. It's perfect justice. There are sinners on the earth at the time. He takes care of them. And then at the end of the 1,000 years, Satan, who was bound at the beginning of the 1,000 years, is released. And then there's another war at the end of those 1,000 years. The Battle of Gog and Magog, it's called, doesn't last long because all Jesus does is consumes them with fire. Consumes them with fire, which brings us to Revelation chapter 21. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, the triune God, is going to destroy this present world. Eviscerate it. It's cursed already, we know that. In Genesis chapter 5, it says the earth, God cursed the earth. God cursed the earth. And it's been spiraling down ever since for 6,000 years. That's, that, you can prove that scientifically. It's called the law of entropy, among others. Matter tends to become disorderly, not orderly, among other things. Things are just falling apart. This, the prophets say it's the heavens and the earth are wearing out like a garment. And it is. The earth is not getting better. The environment is not getting better. And we as humans can't reverse the curse and make it better. It's dissolving and falling apart. And at the end of its purpose, the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father will literally incinerate planet earth and the heavens and make a new heaven and a new earth. And then we go off into eternity and here's the picture of what that looks like. Let's go ahead and look at it. Revelation 21, 1 through 27. There is no way to outline this passage. It's just one breathtaking statement after another. But to help you in terms of our flow of thought today, I came up with a, just a general thematic outline with just three points. The first point, verses 1 through 8, and that is the goal of heaven. And I've already talked about what that is. These are the details. The goal of heaven. The second point is verses 9. It's a little longer. 9 through 21. And that is the glory of heaven. You have the goal of heaven, the glory of heaven. And then it concludes verses 22 to 27. The God of heaven. A specific statement about the God of heaven. So let's go ahead and look at that. As I describe this, uh, looking at the first verse, John says, then I saw, so after, after the millennium where Christ reigns, and then I didn't mention, then after that there's the judgment of all unbelievers of all ages at the great white throne judgment, where they are resurrected in physical bodies. They're judged according to their works and also to their lack of belief. And then they, as a result, because they're unbelievers, they are consigned or put in eternal hell, the lake of fire, forever and ever. Sobering. That's how Revelation 20 ended. And there's even a reference there. It says in verse 11 of chapter 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. The present earth and heaven... They fled away. Literally, they disappeared. That brings us now to Revelation 21. John picks up on that thought. What do you mean, John, that the present heaven and earth disappeared? Well, they did. 
And that's what he's talking about here. The old heaven and the old earth disappeared because God's creating a new heaven and new earth in the future. Uh, what we need to understand as we're reading this chapter is this is a description of heaven in detail, but don't confuse this thinking that if you died tomorrow and you're a Christian, you went to heaven, you would go here and see all this stuff. Because this is not describing how heaven is right now. This is the future. This is the new Jerusalem. And a lot, of, a lot of times, you know, people do that. We go to a funeral or a memorial service, and we're, we're talking about how our beloved fellow, whoever it was, they're now in their resurrection body in the streets of gold, and they're, they're using Revelation 20. No, they're, they're actually not. The resurrection even of the saints is yet future. We saw that in Revelation chapter 6. Our souls are in heaven, in the presence of God, in glory, liberated from all sin and sorrow in this life, but you haven't received your resurrection body yet. That is yet to come. And a lot of these other details, too. This is the future heaven. You've got to be careful when you're studying and talking about heaven in the Bible. Uh, the word heaven refers to many different things. There's the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the, uh, the first heavens are uh, our immediate air we breathe. And then the second heavens are the planets in the solar system. And then the third heaven is actually the abode of God or the spiritual realm. And even that, you've got to be careful because Satan and his demons reside and roam around, <clears throat> roam around in the heavenlies. In the heavenlies. The same word for heaven. And then there's the third heaven, which is actually the abode of God, the dwelling place of God. God the Father. It says he lives in heaven forever, and at the same time it says he created the heavens. So, it is confusing. It is a mystery. So let's go ahead and look at this future glorious heaven. This is the ultimate destiny of all believers for eternity. So this is after being with Christ when you die in this life and you are in the immediate presence with Jesus in what is called paradise. And it's glorious, but it's not the final phase of heaven. And then we'll be resurrected and we come back with Christ and rule with him on the earth for a thousand years and then we go into the eternal state. That's what this is describing. So here it is. Heaven and earth will pass away. And then he says, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 1, then John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. <clears throat> a new heaven and a new earth. And there is a question about, is, does this mean that God renovates the old one? The fallen one, the cursed one? Or is it a completely new one and replaces the old one? And the context in 2 Peter 3, it's clear. This is a completely new heaven and earth. As a matter of fact, God destroys this present earth right now. That's where this earth is headed. All the environmentalists are worried about, oh, the destruction of the planet, and we've got to save it. You aren't going to save it. God's going to destroy it. It's cursed and falling apart. That doesn't mean as Christians we go out and we're allowed to litter. That's not what I'm saying. God made this earth. He cares about it more than any environmentalist or you or I do. But he's told us it's future and destiny. Flip back a couple of books there. Look at Peter. Second Peter. Peter's very specific. Peter's probably writing in around 60 AD, just before he died, 30 years before John talked about the new heavens and the new earth. And this phrase right here, then I saw a new heaven and new earth. John didn't make that up. <clears throat> Jesus didn't make that up in his, during his ministry. Uh, John got that from the Old Testament. He got it from Isaiah. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66. Because in Isaiah, it's talking about the end of the age, and God said, I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and we won't even remember the previous heaven and the previous earth. We won't remember anything about our previous life. And I'll, you know what I say to that? Amen. 
There's a lot about this life I don't want to remember. And that's the promise of this new heaven and new earth. New slate, all things new. Here's 2 Peter, and here's what Peter says about how this world is going to end, starting at uh, verse 3 of 2 Peter 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, here it is, the end of the age, mockers will come with their mocking. They're mocking God, they're mocking the Bible, they're mocking what you believe, they're mocking your eschatology, they're mocking the idea that Jesus will return physically, they're mocking that you take the book of Revelation literally, that's what they're doing. Following after their own lust, saying, hey, where is the promise of his coming? This Jesus you're talking, where is he? I can't see him. That's just echoing guys like Bill Maher and Richard Dawkins, that's, they say that all the time. You believe in God, can't see him, ha ha ha, you don't want to see him. Unbeliever, actually. You should be very frightened at that prospect. Following after their own law, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continue just as it was from the beginning. God's not, you, you believers have been saying your Messiah is coming at the end of the age for thousands and gazillions of years. It ain't going to happen. Verse 5, for they maintain this. Uh, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water and through which the world at the time was destroyed being flooded with water. So he's talking about their, their view of history. Well, God has already invaded one time with a cataclysmic judgment called the flood. Did you forget about the flood? You don't believe in the flood? You don't believe in Noah and the ark? Well, it's a true story. And God wiped out this entire earth and he can do it again. And he will. You mocker. What Peter's doing here, he's in a dialogue with a mocker. God's going to destroy the world again, but he's not going to do it through water. Well, how is he going to do it? Verse 7. But by his word, just the breath of his mouth, that's how powerful God is. By his word, the present heavens and earth where we live right now that everybody's trying to save the earth. No, it's futile. God isn't trying to save the earth. But by God's word in the future, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Complete consumption by divine fire being preserved or kept for the day of judgment. So God's, God's preserving the earth for when he wants to destroy it with fire. We don't need to preserve the earth. He, he's doing it just fine. He's the weatherman. We aren't. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction. In this passage four times, Peter uses the word destruction. Destruction. Literally untied or unraveled or completely dissolved, hence Destruction. God is going to destroy this present earth. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord, that's at the end of the age, and that's a time of judgment, and it's in the future. The day of the Lord will come like a thief when it's unexpected, in which the heavens will pass away, they will disappear. Poof! They're not going to be renovated. They will disappear with a roar. Why? Because there's a, an atomic holocaust at the most basic level of matter. The entire heavens and earth will pass away or disappear with a roar, deafening noise all over the universe. Why? Because then the elements will be destroyed. There it is. At the atomic level, with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Four times he talks about he's going to burn up and incinerate the present heaven and earth with fire. That's complete destruction. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which 
the heavens will be destroyed. There it is again. And the heavens and earth will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. That is how the world is going to end. Just a reminder, it's not ending 11 years from now because of global warming. Although this is global warming. Let's go back to John, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heavens and new earth, because we know what happened to the old one. It passed away, it was incinerated, eviscerated by fire from heaven, from God. Because it's a new day. He creates a new heaven and a new earth, and it is absolutely perfect, and now he's going to describe it. By the way, new heaven and new earth, these are physical. The heaven is physical, the heavenly city is physical, the new earth is physical, it is spatial, that's where we will live. All these conceptions of ideas of heaven eternal that don't involve the physical or you're some kind of invisible angel floating on a cloud forever up in heaven, that's not reality. God's eternal destiny for humanity is to be literally on the earth in a physical existence. That's what this is describing. That's heaven. And he describes it. The new heaven and the new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, literally disappeared. And here's John in his vision. Remember he said, I saw, I saw. And what did he see? The first thing John sees in his vision, he opens his eyes, and the first thing he notices, it's like he's up in the, the space shuttle looking at planet Earth from space. Because if you do that, we have pictures of that. Go to Google, but not in the middle of the sermon. But go to Google and just look at current pictures of the Earth from space. And it's, there's one obvious thing. It's blue. The globe is covered in water. And that's John's perspective. And he's looking at the new earth, and the first thing that sticks out, oh, wow, this is totally different. It's physical, it's real, maybe it was a globe, who knows. But the first thing you know, it's not blue. It actually looks like a diamond. A majestic, brilliant, glorious, shining, blinding diamond. And what John notes, first of all, about it, doesn't go into a whole lot of detail, but he does say this, and there is no longer any sea. So the 75% of the water that covers planet earth currently, gone. There is no more sea. There is no more sea. He didn't explain why. He just says, gone. Although the whole Bible talks about the sea and the things that sea does. Sea separates people. It's the main thing it does. You've got to fly an airplane from this continent to that one. You're separated by people you love, maybe in another country. So the sea separates people. Heaven, no, there ain't no separation. There's no social distancing in heaven right here. You're going to see that. So the sea is gone. There's no separation. People are immediate together. God is, God is accessible and immediately in our presence. So there is no more sea. By the way, we're just, we are all made of water. That's how frail we are. 75% of our body is water. All the animals and plants, they're made up of water. The world is covered in water. Future heaven and earth is not dependent upon water. It's new. There is water. It's called the water of life, whatever that is. It will be accessible to all, refreshing eternal life it will give. It's divine. It's heavenly. We've never experienced anything like it. It's indescribable, but it will be there. Verse 2, he says, and I saw the holy city. So he sees earth, and it's not blue, and there's no more sea. And he says it looks like a diamond, along with the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. So the new earth is going to have a capital city. So as he goes on, his, most of his description is about that capital city. There's another rest of the entire earth, because you might be thinking, how can all the believers of all the ages fit in this place? Well, they can, in terms of its measurements, but there's also the entire earth that he's not describing, and even the new heavens 
where you will be able to roam about freely. But there is a new city. Why does he point out the new city? Because God always has a, a capital. He has a capital in the city on planet Earth. His precious nation, Israel, has a capital city. It's called Jerusalem. It's always been precious to him. It's where his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rule for a thousand years in the millennium. It's where his precious, beloved King David reigned from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the apple of God's eye, precious to him. Been disobedient, even though Israel rejected, for the most part, the laws that Moses had given in 1400 B.C. for a thousand years and were completely disobedient, time and time and time again, except for a remnant, God didn't give up on Israel. They lived a thousand years in disobedience. They've rejected the Messiah, and still the New Testament refers to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 4 as the holy city. That sinful, compromised city, it's still called the holy city. We saw that even in Revelation. The first literal Jerusalem is precious to God, and as a result, there will be continuity carried over into eternity to remind all that Jerusalem is precious to me. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the perfect Jerusalem. Jesus will reign as king from this Jerusalem. God's presence will be there. It's a real place. It's a real city. It's a heavenly city. It's a divine city. It's a mind-boggling city. We can't even conceive of this city. It is so different and so perfect, which is ironic anyway to think of a holy city, a perfect city, a sinless city. All the cities on planet Earth today and throughout history, those, that's where sin resides. That's the hub of rebellion, typically, a city. Not so in God's heaven. So he saw this new city of Jerusalem coming down. He says that three times. It's coming down, perpetually coming down out of heaven from God. God created this new city. He made it with his own hands supernaturally somehow. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to make a place for you in this new heavenly eternal city. God made it. It'll last forever. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This new city is called the bride of God. We saw earlier that God's people are called the bride. In the Old Testament, Israel is called the bride. The people of believers of all ages are the bride of God and of Christ. This city is called the bride because that's where the people reside. So it's the bride. It's being prepared. It's adorned with glory for Jesus. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is probably the most important verse in this chapter. If you want to take one verse away, this is it. God dwelling immediately with his people for the first time in human history. But now it's going to go into eternity in, in, into eternity in complete fullness. According to Ezekiel 40 to 48, it says there will be a millennial temple, a physical, literal temple. Why, why do we need a temple? Jesus will be there. Well, that's what it says. In this new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem, there is no temple. What is a temple? All throughout Scripture, tabernacle, that's where God dwells in a confined, separated, isolated place from his people. There's no need of a temple in the New Jerusalem in the eternal state. <clears throat> and verse 3, you can mark it. Three times, I don't know if you picked it up, three times. Remember we said the ultimate purpose of God is to dwell with his people. The name of Jesus is Emmanuel. God is with us. It's right here, verse 3. Three times I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God. You know what that means? The, pre the literal presence of God. 
The literal presence of God is among men. Now, if you have a New American Standard and an NIV, get your pencil ready and make a correction. The Greek text literally says meta, M-E-T-A, that means with. With. Thank you, King James, for getting it right. Thank you, ESV, for getting it right. Thanks, New King James and CSB, for getting it right. It's a difference. Behold, the dwelling, the literal presence of God is with his people. Not among his people, with his people. It says with three times. There is a big difference between among the crowd and with someone specifically. You go to a football game in the stadium and there's 70,000 people and from the outside you could say, yeah, my son, he's among the crowd in there. No, actually, he's with his dad sitting in row seven. That's what it should say. God is with his people. Emmanuel, God is with us. Finally, behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God, the presence of God. And John uses a word regarding the immediate presence of God that he takes one time in the Old Testament. You've heard of the Shekinah glory? That word actually is only used one time in the Bible in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 12. I think it's verse 5. And it means the, the literal dwelling presence of Almighty God in his desire to be with his people. That is the Shekinah glory. Shekinah, great name to name your daughter. Behold, the, the tabernacle of God is with man, that means with his people, and he will dwell among them. There it is. He's going to interact with us and be with us and accessible to us. And Somebody asked me recently, can I hug Jesus in heaven? Why not? He will be with them, and they shall be his people. There's no greater phrase for personal intimacy than that. They will be his people. They belong to him. He belongs to them. God himself will be with them. He says it three times. Do you get it, people? I will be with you. I will be with you. You will be with me. That is an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, verse 25. Dear Father, I want to be with my people in glory. Here's your answer. And then he goes on about the intimacy involved. The intimacy, that's the point here in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear. It's a singular, singular, detailed, specific, personal, intimate attention. He will wipe away every tear. That doesn't mean people are going to be crying in heaven. All three, four, it, It's just mentioning there aren't going to be any tears, and God's going to give specific individual attention to every human being that he made in his image. He's not going to be too busy for you in heaven. Well, look at the line. It goes for miles. No. He can pull it off. He's got it. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. They will no longer. Then he goes on with about seven or eight ways to describe what the glory of the new heaven is like, and he uses all negative terms. Why does he use all negative terms? Well, because all the new stuff that we've never seen before in our life, if he explained it to us, we wouldn't understand it because we've never even seen it. There's no frame of reference. Now he's referring to things we can relate to. As a matter of fact, the things that he says, that he says won't be there, these are commonplace daily in this fallen world that we have to deal with all the time, that we despise and that, that break our hearts or that create anxiety and strife in this life. And so in his genius, he's saying, you know what? Those won't be there. Those things that weigh you down, those things that make you feel like this life isn't worth it, they won't even exist in heaven. And he describes them. No more tears, personal attention from God himself. You won't be isolated. There will no longer be any death. There it is. That's the greatest enemy and the last enemy. Death is an enemy of God. It won't be there. It's gone. 
No more death. There will no longer be any mourning. That is internal distress. Crying is the external expression of that. This is all bad crying. Crying over physical pain. Crying over sorrow. Crying over loss. Crying over fear. All gone. No pain. No physical pain. Why? Because the first things have passed away. The first bad things. All these things that can be defined by evil and as a result of the curse, they are gone. They are banished. They don't exist. And what you conclude is the definition from John's point of view through this vision is that what characterizes the eternal state the most, in one word, would be joy. Sheer joy, unhindered joy, unveiled joy, eternal joy, undistracted joy. Pure joy like we've never known. Can you imagine being joyful purely 100% all the time, 24-7? No, you can't. Neither can I. It's not possible. Not in this life. And as you grow older in this life, you can have joy about something. A a baby was born rejoicing at the same time a a beloved one who just died. And you are conflicted. That won't be true in heaven. Sheer, pure, supernatural joy. Unprecedented joy. That's what heaven is about. Verse 5, and he who sits on the throne said, so this is God the Father. This is really the first time he's spoken directly since Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. God the Father himself sitting on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. There it is. That's heaven. That's eternal heaven. I'm making all things new. Behold, I'm making all things new. And then he said, right. So here's John in awe. He, he puts his quill down or his chisel or whatever he's writing with. And he's just dumbfounded. And so God the Father has to remember, right. For these words are faithful and true. This is true. I love that. Is the Bible inerrant? Yes. Is it truth? Yes. Is it infallible? Yes. Is it authoritative? Yes. Can you count on it? Yes. How do you know? Because God the Father himself said, this is true. All the skeptics, even many Christians, read this stuff, Revelation 21, says, ah, this, this can't be. Can't really be like, you can't take it literally. And then God the Father says, this is true. No, you can't have an earth with no water and all glorious and looking like a diamond floating in space. This is true. No, you can't have an existence where there's no more pain and crying and everything's absolutely perfect for all eternity. This is true. No, you can't have streets of gold all over the place in the new heavens and all these glorious gems shining in their brilliance, reflecting the eternal unveiled glory of God for the whole universe to see all the time with no more darkness but all pure light. This is true. It's what God the Father is saying then if you're one of those Christians that actually takes Revelation literally and you get picked on or teased or made fun of by other Christians who don't take it literally, you know, I don't feel bad because the onus is on you. I actually believe the Bible. And you're trying to tell me it's not true. It's not literal. Really? Verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's out of the Old Testament as well. The beginning and the end. That's, we heard God say that. Get this. You know who said that in Isaiah? Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. Yahweh God. Yahweh God of the Old Testament said, the creator God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean? That's the beginning and the end. And he literally says that, interprets it. I am the beginning and the end. 
I am the eternal one who has always existed. I am the eternal one who will always exist. I am infinite in my existence. I never had a beginning. No one created me. I always will be. I am the ultimate one. There is no one greater than me. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Says Yahweh God in the Old Testament. Says God the Father right here. And then you flip one chapter. Revelation 22, the Lord Jesus Christ says this. Chapter 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. Jesus is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are the one triune God of the Bible. Distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, when he says these things are faithful and true, why can we believe him? Because he's God. Because he's Alpha and Omega. He knows everything. He determines the end from the beginning. He should be questioned by no man. We're clay. He's the potter. We're nothing. The beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts. And here's God continually in his grace and mercy through John in 95 AD and all throughout church history, pleading with the sinner to come to Christ. Maybe you're in rebellion right now. You don't believe this. You're rejecting Christ. You're hiding. You want to cultivate and run from God and coddle your sin. And God's wooing continually with the gospel. Come. It's not too late. Come. Just as Jesus goes up at the last minute and gives Judas the the betrayer, a kiss. Calling him his friend and treating him special at the Last Supper, trying to woo him to repentance. That's the heart of God. He's a holy judge, and he's also the gracious, patient Savior. Here's this promise. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Jesus said that in John chapter 7. Come all. Anyone who thirsts, anyone who's hungry for forgiveness, hungry to know their creator, hungry to know the meaning of life, hungry to have the, the burden of your guilt relieved. Come. You don't even need to do anything. You come to the Savior. He gives you the water. He gives you the solution. He died for you. He died in your place. He absorbed the wrath of the Father. Come. All you have to do is believe what he did on your behalf and who he is. That's the good news. He came to rescue you, sinner so that he can save you, heal you, adopt you into his family and be one of his precious children. That's grace. And that's what he's doing here. Come without cost. Give up your false religion, all the deeds you're trying to do, crawling on your knees, going up the stairs, giving your money, going to church, bowing the knee to the authorities of your religious institution, keeping track of everything, checking the boxes. Works, 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 which never gives you security. You can't save yourself. Only God can save you. Only Jesus can save you. And if you are saved, you've got a wonderful promise. Not only are you a child of God, verse 7, you become an overcomer. Nike, Nike, an overcomer, the powerful one. You become a powerful one. Jesus is the powerful one, and you, made our, you are like him. You also become a powerful one, an overcomer. So this is the eighth overcomer promise of Revelation. He who overcomes will inherit these Things. They're yours. The description that I just gave of the new heaven and the new earth, they're yours. God isn't going to hoard these things to himself. They're yours. You're my children. And they are yet future reserved for all of us. Everything about heaven that's precious about heaven literally is there yet to come. Like our Savior, that's the greatest thing about heaven is our Savior. He's there. He's not here. 
He's here through the presence of the Spirit, but he is there, our inheritance is there, our citizenship is there, our eternal existence is there. Everything we cherish literally and specifically about heaven is there in heaven. That's our home. We're just passing through this life. There's some bad news. This is reality, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable... You know who these are? This is a description of the unbelievers specifically in the tribulation. This is how they conducted themselves. Cowardly, that was people actually who professed to know Christ. And in the face of persecution or whatever, they weren't Christians. They were phonies. They were like Judas. Judas was a coward. So these are descriptions of unbelievers, but it also gives specific detail about what characterized their unbelief. Because unbelievers won't be judged by believing in Jesus Christ, they will be judged by their works. And here are their works. This is their nature revealed as seen in their character and their behavior. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, that's just wicked, vile, sinful people. Murderers, particularly the murderers who slaughtered Christians in the tribulation or believers and who do so today and all throughout history. Unbelievers, they hate believers. Immoral persons, porneia. Sorcerers, pharmacos, pharmacy, drugs. Drug users, drug abusers, and a lot of false religion is around the manipulation and abuse of drug and intoxication. Idolaters and all liars. God is truth, Jesus is truth, the Spirit is truth, His Word is truth. God has no tolerance for liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That is eternal hell. This is true. So the goal of heaven on God's part is to be in the immediate presence with His people. Let's look at the glory, and we'll just walk through this because it's self-descriptive. Can't add to it. I don't even know what half of it conceivably means. I'm like, John, I'm like, wow. This is mind-boggling. So let's look at the glorious description of the new heaven that is yet to come in the new Jerusalem. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plates came and spoke with me, real angel, talking to John, saying, come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. This is the new Jerusalem, the new heavenly city, the place that Jesus is preparing for you and for me, according to John 14, 2 and 3. And he carried me away in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Does God care about Israel? Absolutely. In the future, yes. It's eternally ingrained in the new heavenly city. It's called Jerusalem. This is the greatest thing about it. It has the glory of God. The glory of God. Boy, if I were to ask you, what does, in a sentence, define the glory of God? You should know that as a Christian. Do it in your head. The glory of God is, what would you say? That's not easy. What is the glory of God? Well, the way it's used all throughout Scripture consistently is the glory of God, because God the Father, in particular, has no body. He is a spirit. He's infinite. He's bigger than any space that we know of. He cannot be confined to anything, and he's not physical. But he's perfect, and he's glorious, so the glory of God always talks about a physical manifestation that a human being could actually see that represents God and all the fullness of his attributes that's being manifest so that a human could see it, just a portion of God's glory. So what is the glory of God? It's the physical, literal manifestation of the fullness of God's attributes on a wee little scale 
that we humans could handle. Like Moses, God, I want to see your face. And God said, nope, but you can see a little bit of my glory. And he showed it to him. And there was a little bit of glory in, in the Holy of Holies that the high priest could experience once a year. So that's glory. A visible manifestation of the attributes of God. That's, what, that's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen a physical manifestation of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the brilliance of the city was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper, literally a diamond, a perfect diamond, a clear diamond, the greatest diamond there ever was, completely see-through and translucent, the entire city. And it's a massive city, bigger than any city we've ever known in the history of the world. It looked like a massive diamond, verse 12. And it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels. And the names were written, what's a gate for? So you can go in and out. We will be able to go in and out of this heavenly city for all eternity. And the angels are up there, and they're the doorkeepers. Have a nice day. See you in 50 years. Welcome back. It has gates. Brilliant. High wall, 12 gates. At the gates, angels. Names were written on the gates. The names were the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, the beloved people of God in the Old Testament. Verse 13, there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west, just like it's pictured in the Old Testament when the Israelites settled down and they had the tribes broken down, three, 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 and three, just like, because that's what Hebrews says, that all these things that are reality in the Old Testament are a picture of something greater in the future. The Old Testament, Jerusalem, was a picture of the new Jerusalem. The tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament was a picture of the dwelling presence of God in heaven. The reality, not the shadow. Verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the apostles, twelve apostles of the Lamb. So you've got the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles of the... Who's in the new Jerusalem? All of God's people from all the ages. You have saved Israel. You have the saved church. The church is not Israel. Here's the distinction. Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. That's clear here. But there's a continuity because believing Israelites and believing Church people are in God's family. They're all his children. And when a father has children, they look different. And God preserves that difference. And then there are saved Gentiles and nations in verse 24. So that would be people who got saved who were not in the theocracy of Israel or in the church. Guys like Noah. People who got saved before Israel was started. This is all of God's people are in heaven. The city is laid out like a square, literally a cube, and its length is great as the width, and the, he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles in length and width and height are equal. So that the city has walls, and they are 1,500 miles tall. Verse 17, and he measured the wall, and it was 72 yards. 72 yards, that means the wall was, that's how thick the wall was. It was 72 yards thick, it will be, and it's holding up these walls that are 1,500 miles high. This is just the capital city of heaven. How far is 72 yards? That's how far Tom Brady can throw the football. And get this, well, isn't this just spiritual and allegorical and doesn't mean anything? And then he adds this. It's 72 yards according to human measurements. There it is. Oh, and by the way, for you spiritualizers, allegorizers, Human measurements are the same as angelic measurements. So when you get to heaven and you want a cup of water, cup of human water, an angelic cup of water is the same. Verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper, 
Again, translucent, precious stone. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. So it's, it's like gold. It's not gold. It's like gold. But it's pure. It's translucent. It's clear. You can see through it. That's not like human gold. But these walls are pure. They're translucent so that God's presence that's dwelling in the city and God is giving off all this brilliant light. It is just being refracted through these walls into the entire universe. The glory, so the glory of God can literally immediately be seen from everywhere in the universe, from the capital city. That's the point. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the, are you keeping track? The fourth emerald. These are all precious stones, either metals or rocks. The fifth was sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Why do you list all those specifically? Well, most of those were actually on the breastplate of the high priest. When he went into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, into the immediate presence of God. That is the point. Every believer will have immediate access to Almighty God himself. Verse 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Take that. The, gate, the entire gate was a pearl. This is different. Did you know that the pearl is the only precious gem that is not a metal or a rock? It's not made out in nature? That the pearl is actually made by a living organism? The clam or whatever it is, the mollusk? And the way it's made, it's absolutely fascinating. And it makes this precious pearl after being wounded, basically. After being wounded over the course of time. There's an example of God turning beauty from ashes. A living organism. That's what Jesus did for us. He was wounded. And it gave us the beauty of his forgiveness. I don't know if that's why God is making these gates of pearl, but boy, what an eternal reminder that is. Simply glorious. And the street of the city was pure gold, like translucent glass. Okay, let's close with the God of heaven, verse 22. And I saw no temple in it, because we already talked about you don't need a temple if you have the immediate presence of God, because he's dwelling there with his people. So there is no need of a temple. For the Lord God, that's the Father, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Okay, so this is the first time Jesus is mentioned, and the Lamb. He's there. Well, what about Jesus? He's there. He's the Lamb. He's with the Father. You have immediate presence to the glorified Christ. They are the temple. The immediate presence is there. Verse 23, that's the greatest thing about eternal heaven. It's the presence of Jesus. That's the greatest thing about paradise. Now when you die, you, go, you are immediately in the presence of Christ. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? Because of God's glory. God's glory just out makes the sun look like a shadow. God's glory illumines it. Jesus Christ even gives off brilliant light. There's no need of a sun. It's 24-7, by the way. It doesn't get dark in eternal heaven. It's always open. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light. These are probably Gentiles who were saved, who were not in a part of the theocracy of Israel or the church age. They're called the nations, the Gentiles, the Goyim. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory. There will be kings in eternal 
in the eternal state? Yes, because Jesus said that, remember? If you overcome, I'll give you a rod of iron. You will function like a priest or a prince or a king. You will be given rule over the angels. They will bring the glory of it into the city. Verse 25, in the daytime, for there will be no night. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it as we continually forever represent in perfect fulfillment God himself. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. In other words, eternal heaven is without sin forever. Only bliss. Only joy for all eternity. That is beyond human conception. This is our home. This is heaven. This is our future. This is our destiny. These words are faithful and true because God said so. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we thank you for our time together again to worship with the saints. Thank you for your, good, your goodness and graciousness to our, our local church, always providing for our local body, leading us, even providing opportunity for us to gather in fellowship, to study your word, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, being physically present and also through the many avenues of technology you've graced us with. Help us fill our minds with meditation upon the glories we just read in Revelation 21. God, use your Holy Spirit to impress it upon our mind, our conscience, our memory, that we don't forget these things. This is our greatest desire, or it should be, to be with you in your literal and physical presence. And we thank you for the reminder from Jesus himself that that is your desire as well, God, to be with your people. Fill our hearts with that great truth. We love you. We commit it to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.